Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It is uh, so much fun to be back. We're now uh, at episode 11 of season two. To 11? That's the number of this particular episode of the podcast, 211. And chapter... I, I can't chapter 11, 11. chapter 11, 11. Yeah, 211. Yeah, I get it. it there's Which no aligns, aligns nicely with our finances. So that's great. <laughs> and we are creeping ever so quickly up on the halfway point for season two. Yeah. yeah, I should. Uh, I, I think I might've mentioned earlier in the season, I should warn folks that uh, although we're doing 24 episodes this season, because that's what you get, there are more than 24 chapters in the bullet catch. So there'll be a couple of uh, episodes coming up where you're going to get double chapters, which will be super Ooh. fun. Yeah. Hey, that's news even to me. And I, I feel like I'm, you if know, you, if you would just come to the meetings, that's all I'm saying. If you just come to the meetings, don't rehearse. I only perform. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Because if you don't rehearse, you don't play. And if you don't play, that runs into money. So uh, we may have overhyped this episode a little bit. I was looking back on some of the things we've said about Harrison Greenbaum, who in re-listening to the the interview, he's not that funny, is he? Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's He's pretty darn funny. And his points. It couldn't be uh, more apt for the the theme we're on the last few episodes, how to build a better magician. Uh, Harrison has a simple statement for his fellow magicians. You are all terrible. (laughs) Yes. It's a, it's a harsh statement. He does back it up with some pretty compelling evidence. Yeah, he does. And uh, the other thing to keep in mind, I think straight across the board is that he's doing it from the right place. It's a, it's a place of caring deeply about the art of magic and, and so while he's making that broad statement, he, he, he means it both for good and for fun. Uh, it's a funny statement, but it's very true. Uh, I think he's right. And it, I, not just for magicians, but I think anybody in the, uh, well, I may even broaden it out of just performers, but I think he's right. If, if you care deeply about something, you want it to be as good as it could possibly be. And that's what he's doing. He's trying to affect the overall magical community by saying, hey, we can do better. We should do better. We owe it to ourselves and others to do better. And and really the takeaway for me was, and I'm paraphrasing now, but Elvis was great. Elvis impersonators are fun, but there's a big difference between the two. So your blog post and you have an upcoming book uh, posits a, a very simple hypothesis. Magicians, you are all terrible. Uh, you go on to say uh, not all of them, most of them. Why do you feel this way? Yeah, I mean, it started off a little bit uh, like as a joke because um, I, I was thinking about putting together this lecture and I thought, what should the first slide be when, I, when they walk into the room? What should be on the PowerPoint behind me? And I just really love that image of it saying, you are all terrible. Uh, and the reason the reason I feel that way is because I, I'm one of, if not the only sort of comedy magician who does stand up full time also. Um, so a lot of my time, I'm on the stages of comedy clubs in New York doing pure stand up. And uh, then when basically the sort of origin story was that I, I started out as a kid magician. When I got to college, I started doing stand up. And right before I did one of my first stand up gigs, somebody saw me stuffing a magic trick in my back pocket and said, what are you doing? 
And I said, well, they, you know, these are sponge balls. It's a little closer so that if the jokes don't go well, I have something to, to close strong with. And uh, he was like, well, you're never going to learn if you have that safety net. Like, you have to live and die by your jokes. So I took them out of my pocket. And for a long time, I kept my stand-up and my magic separate. And eventually, though, I kind of wanted to put my money where my mouth was because I love magic. And I figured I, I could combine the two in a way um, that felt right for me and, and, and really felt like a stand-up comedy set with magic as opposed to the usual combination, which is a magic set with comedy. But I realized, too, it was distressing to me that most magicians, like I would say at least 95% of magicians, were doing other people's tricks with other people's scripts based on other performances they saw. Uh, and that, that basically means 95% of magicians are cover bands. And distressingly, um, it's like if every magician is is singing the Beatles and they all think they're John Lennon. Yeah, That's the vibe that you get from magic. And I was like, this is terrible. That's why you are all terrible. And so I'm gonna try to explain to them that the way art actually works is not buy a trick, change it a little bit and jam it into your act. It starts with an idea and then, you, you know, you figure out how you express that through your art form, which is magic. So the first half of that lecture is just trying to explain that magic is an art form, but only if you approach it as an art. You can't just buy a trick and shove it in your act. That's not how magic works. That's a. Uh, it is how magic works. That is how I was just going to say. Yeah, that's, but it's not. See, that's the thing is I disagree. That's how magicians currently do it. But right. that's not how ma all, all of the heroes, all of the idols in magic, your Penn and Tellers, your David Copperfields, all of those guys, the reason that they are who they are and, and they're so revered is because they don't do that. Right. So the, the template is there. The model is there. You know, we, we had uh, comedian Wayne Fetterman on uh, in our last season. I love Wayne. And one of the things we talked about was there was perception that he said is kind of true that in the 40s and 50s and early 60s with stand-up comics, there was a, a sort of generic stand-up comic and they all did the same jokes or they'd share jokes or they'd talk to each other before they went on and said, are you doing the mother-in-law routine tonight? And the, that was very common in the Catskills. And he said, that's true. That did exist. But at the same time, you also had your Mort Sauls and Shelley Bermans and your true originals. And I think that analogy works with magicians today in that you have your Penn and Tellers and your David Blaine's and your true originals. And then you also have the people who are generic and are kind of sharing things. And eventually that went away in stand-up comedy. You don't right. have that anymore. Somehow you guys grew out of that. And I think with your kind of thinking, maybe magic will have that same transition. Right. But if you look historically, so stand-up comedy and Wayne is the, is the person to talk to about stand-up history. He wrote, literally wrote the book on it, but it, it's, there's not that much history, right? So you go to vaudeville and then the Catskills and the Borscht Belt. And we're talking about like within the lifetime, people have been alive that have seen basically all of stand-up. There are people who lived pre-stand-up essentially. Uh, the history of American stand-up particularly is not very long. Magic goes back thousands of years. Magicians uh, are very proud to tell you that there's maybe cave paintings of somebody doing uh, the magic ding-dong inappropriately at a birthday party. I think that was the first trick. It was the, also the first human sacrifice when they found that man and said, what are you doing? But it, magic should be ahead of comedy. Like it's had so many more years to develop. So that's, that's sort of the tough love approach that I take. There's no excuses. I, uh... Not even Eli Marks, by the way. I was reading one of the stories and I'll read a quote from it. This is what he said. He said, I then moved right into the classic magical snowstorm effect, which I and virtually every other magician in the world 
used as my finale when a big finish was required. No, Eli. Bad, Eli. Bad. <laughs> That's oh, don't do that. Time in any of these interviews wow. that someone has turned the tables on us. Yeah. That's okay, bad. we're going to wrap it up right now. That's uh, it. We're done. I'm out. I got nothing. That's fantastic. Bring Eli on the podcast right now. I have some words for him. That is very true. And, and Eli would be the first person to agree with you that uh, magicians are terrible. In fact, as the series goes on, he be becomes less and less enthralled with other magicians. So uh, he's, <laughs> he's, he's learning at that point. There's, there's a Eugene Berger quote that uh, I'm going to butcher, um, but it's basically that uh, magic is great, but magicians are terrible. That I, I'm paraphrasing it to make it match my thing, but it, there was that thing of like, mag magic is wonderful and it's magicians who ruin it. Yeah. Don't you think, though, to a certain extent, that what you're suggesting is just a ton of work that most people may not be willing to to you know do uh, that, that? And I get it. I think you're absolutely right, uh, completely straight across the board. But the amount of work that goes into creating either a, an astounding piece of magic or five minutes of killer comedy is a lot of work. And a lot of people, most of us, either aren't willing to do that, don't feel we're capable of doing that, or, you know, have never thought about it in that way. I learned this because that, and, you know, uh, what do you think? Am I, am I way off base on that? No, you're 100% you're correct. And, and to that, I say tough titties. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is hard. It is really hard to be a, a great artist. Uh, John, when he wrote his, when, when you wrote the book, you didn't just take a book from the '40s and copy and paste the name and change it to Eli Marks and go, "Look at my new book." Wow, it's it's slightly different, and I I changed China to Japan, like like every magician does. They, you know, I, we I, we joke because I, I I work at Magic Camp. Uh, I was a camper there. I'm now a counselor. I go every year. And uh, every once in a while, you have a kid who's like 10 years old and they do their, their trick for the competition. And they're like, hey, I was on this business trip to China. And you're like, you're a 10 year old boy. What, what are you talking about? That, that's not a thing. Uh, but the problem is it's cute and okay when it's a 10 year old. It's not cute when it's a 35 year old. Yeah, magic is hard. Um, and taking the easy way out is, uh, is not acceptable. <laughs> And the other thing on top of it is, I, I think it's one thing to say, okay, I'm going to be a cover band. Like my, one of my dad's friends is in a cover band and uh, he makes a very good living. He has a lot of fun touring as not Journey. Yeah. But he knows he's in a Journey cover band. He doesn't walk around going, I'm, I'm Journey. Because that would be borderline a crime if not uh, committable. Yeah. Uh, but most magicians are doing Journey covers and then acting like they wrote that, that they are Journey. Um, they don't know that what they're doing is wrong. Um, and they're using that ignorance as a cover for their laziness. Ouch. A lot of this is painful, man. I, 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 if the truth I hurts. If I'm a magician listening to our podcast right now, I, uh, I don't know. Thank God I'm not. Thank God I'm not a magician because that, that's a, that is a, I think you're dead right. I really do. Um, but it's, it's terrifying to think, I can't, I, how? Well, I, but this, here's the thing is he's saying the truth, but it's not like you're saying there's a problem without offering a solution because you do have a solution. 
Yeah, I've heard you talk about that. That works in, in your stand-up comedy world, and you've just applied it to magic. And what is the solution? Uh, yeah, magicians, listen closely. The, the solution is quit. Just stop doing it. You're <laughs> terrible. Why? 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 We don't need another hippity hop rabbit routine. The world has enough of them. Just stop it. No, uh, the solution. <laughs> the solution is, first of all, the artistic method is that you come up with an idea first and then you figure out the technique to illustrate it. Um, I talk about a painter. Your a painter doesn't go to the art store and buy blue and then go, oh, I'm going to use this for the sky. They, they decide I'm going to paint the sky and then they go to the art store to get the supplies they need uh, or their closet to, to paint the sky, which is their idea. It should be a tremendously freeing and fun process. Uh, instead of me having to look at sort of all these restrictions uh, where I'm, I'm holding a trick in my hand already and figuring out how I can reskin it for my act. I'm just sitting at an empty computer screen going, what do I want to tell the world or what do I want to happen on stage? And then I know that eventually I can figure out the method. Um, there's there's going to be a way to make that work on stage. Uh, so every trick in my act really starts with sort of the idea of what it will be. Uh, and then the rest of the process is figuring out, okay, I'm not a wizard. So how can I, as a human being without actual magical powers, make this thing happen in a convincing way? But you have the advantage there of understanding all the methods and, and what is possible. And I think it'd be hard for someone to get to that point without having done, you know, the 10,000 hours of hippie hop rabbits or whatever, in order to understand not only here, here are the methods that'll work with this idea, but uh, here's the practical considerations of being in front of an audience and doing this. I mean, you you can't, while someone can just sit down and pick up a pen and, and start drawing something, they may not be great, but they can do something. With magic, you do need a certain level of, you have to have a certain level of training in order to understand how to create something. I mean, you always hear about occasion, you hear an interview of someone who says, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere and there were no magic books. And I saw somebody on TV do magic and I reverse engineered his entire act and came up with uh, how, how it's done. And it turned out that every method that I came up with was unique and original. It's not how he did it. You hear about those folks occasionally, but that's the, the rare savant that's out there. I suppose what's happening is in order to get the level of learning that you need to hit the level you're at to create, you can easily get in a rut and go, well, all right, I've learned everything that I need to know. I'm just going to buy that. You know, I just saw this great trick. I'm going to buy that and add that to Mac. I mean, it's a, definitely a rut that you would, that you'd get into. And since no one's putting a gun to their heads to get them out of that rut, what is your recommendation to try to make that what happened with stand-up comedy happen with magic where it is all unique? Yeah. I mean, it also depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to put art out, then this is the method. If your goal is, I just want people to like me in social situations, then okay, you got a pen through dollar. Congratulations. But um, I, I mean, we, I, I, work, I walk children at Magic Camp through this process and, and it's very successful. Um, there are, obviously you need to know the basics, but I think that's every art form. Um, yes, you can just, most people who know how to write can sit down and write a book. Their first book is probably gonna be terrible. <laughs> Uh, and it takes a while to learn how to do it. And there's a whole process too. Same thing with any art form. Um, Stand-up comedy, the the tools required are very small. I mean, it, it, I just need to write stuff down and then I need to speak them. Uh, but at the beginning, it was it was really hard. Um, and nobody, you can take comedy classes, but I, I, I didn't. And there was nobody there to show me the ropes. I just had to write jokes, go on stage, have the audience not laugh at them and go, okay, I guess I got to change these ones. 
and then keep doing it until they laughed. And it's not a, it's not necessarily the most pleasant process. <laughs> um, so at least with magic, you can do the trick, part, at least parts of the trick, and know that they're going to work before you go on stage. You can practice that sleight of hand move over and over again and know it's going to be perfect when you go on stage or know it be as close to perfect as you can get it. Um, whereas, yeah, comedy, the only the instrument itself, like a guitar player has a guitar and a singer has uh, their voice. The comedian has the audience. And so the only way to practice is to get on stage. Uh, there's, there is no just practicing in your apartment. Uh, do, do you, when you think about it, and you talked about keeping them separate for a long time and now sort of melding them, do you have a, do you have a preference for one rather than the other? Someone calls and says, I want you to come do stand-up. Are you disappointed that they didn't say, and do a little magic? Or somebody calls you and say, hey, we want you to do some magic. Are you like, I, I would just soon leave the sponge balls at home and, and do straight stand-up. I like how you assume I still have the sponge balls in my act. I don't, I don't judge. <laughs> I don't judge. Uh, no, so when I was a kid, I thought that was my ticket because everybody specialized in a magic. So you'd have like David Roth was a coin guy and Max Maven was a mentalist guy and Copperfield did big, big grand illusions and Franz Harari just yelled now a lot. <laughs> um, but everybody had a thing, you know? And so I thought, what thing does nobody have right now? Albert Goshman is dead. I'll be the SpongeBob guy. And so I was like 14 or 15, and I, I fixated exclusively on SpongeBob magic. And I had uh, a trick that was the multiplying rabbis instead of the multiplying rabbits. It, it went in a, it, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't know if I've said this on a podcast before, but when I was, I, I must've been maybe 14 or, or 15, I did not have control of my powers. So I was like, ooh, wouldn't that be funny if the rabbits turned into rabbis? And then at the time, Catholic priests were in the news. So one is if they turn into priests and there's like a kid and a priest that keeps trying to go from one hand to the other. And then there was a Michael Jackson reference in there. Basically by the end of my set, <laughs> all the counselors sat me down and they're like, uh, this might not be the material for you at the moment. <laughs> You're you're a child. I don't know if that's the material for anyone in any moment. Did they tell you to go back to the bit about being a businessman in Japan? That that would make more. That's sense right, exactly. Like you know what? For you, China business trip. Absolutely, absolutely. We would much prefer that. Uh, and ironically, that was that routine was probably close a closer taste of where my broken brain would take my show twenty years from that moment than anything else. I, I always say when I'm doing a lot of magic, when I'm like on the road. Um, setting up, you know, setting up a show. It takes 90 minutes to set it up and 90 minutes to break it down. And I'm checking and I'm doing, I'm checking my pockets. I'm like, man, it would be nice to just walk into the show and do stand up. And then after a while of running around to the clubs, I'm like, you know what? I miss doing magic. So I, I, I want to be doing whatever I'm not currently doing, which is the ultimate recipe for sadness. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you figured it out. That's nice. <laughs> I've set myself up for just a lifelong of, of depression. <laughs> you kind of hit on it, but let's let's end on a positive note. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. So to a magician who's listening now who hasn't turned off <laughs> and deleted the podcast from their queue, what advice do you give them to, to stop being a cover band and start being an artist? I mean, it, it starts with just the, with recognition. I mean, that that's part of the, the, the thing of the lecture is is opening it up by by making magicians aware of this issue. Um, obviously, comedians comedians write their own stuff. If you found out your favorite comedian 
didn't write their own stuff, I think you'd be disappointed in that person. Uh, we feel that way about all other artists, so we need to apply that to ourselves. Um, the, the easy answer, uh, even though this is a very easy description of a very hard process, is just come up with ideas uh, and then figure out what the technique is. But here's a, here's a rhyming poem, and this is the key. Anything that rhymes is, is true. Uh, for example, when I started out as a comedian, uh, they told me, don't poke where you joke. And I said, wow, there's no version of this for magicians, mostly because uh, they, they don't have sex. But, but <laughs> here's the rhyme that is important though. Is it true? Is it new? Is it you? When I talk about art having a point, I wanted to kind of give my, the readers, this is, this is in, the, in the forthcoming book, You Are All Terrible, colon, the book. Sometimes I like the colon to be part of the title. <laughs> But uh, yeah, is it true? Is it new? Is it you? So the true part is, is what you're putting out into the world true to the world? Jokes based on stereotypes? Probably not true. Not really helpful or useful. If you're creating a fictional world also, is it true uh, interiorly? Is it, is it true to the world that you've created? Uh, Eli Marks might not live in, in the real, he, he lives in a version of the real world that could have its own set of rules. So they just has, he has to be true to that. Um, and same thing with a magician. You might not actually follow the rules of the world, but you need to know what the rules are. There are rules. So that's true. Is it new? Is are, is what you're putting out, has it never been done before? doesn't mean you can't put out an, uh, a murder, another murder novel, <laughs> a murder mystery novel, but is what you're doing, as Darren Brown would say, in dialogue with past art? Are you, are you furthering the conversation? If you're going to make audience people spend time watching what you do and you're going to spend time creating it, it should be... Uh, it, it should be new. It should be something they, they haven't seen before and something that progresses their understanding um, and their enjoyment of the world. And then is it you, is it something that you unique, uniquely can be doing? You know, the ideal for a comedian uh, is when you hear a joke, even if you're just reading it, you're like, that's a Seinfeld joke or like, that's a Chris Rock joke. Part of it is having a unique voice and point of view, but do things that only you can do. If, you, if you're doing something that can be easily pasted into somebody else's act, or you just took something from somebody else's act and pasted it into yours, it's, lo it's losing the you-ness. That's why I find it really hard to believe that when you go to a magic store, you can find a perfect trick ready to made, ready made to go into your act because the you that made it is not the you that's doing it. And, and also it's it, what makes it unique and uh, helps you get all the things that you want, be booked, be known, be uh, appreciated by delivering a product that only you can, can deliver. So those are the sort of three things that you need to ask yourself about the things in your act and your act in general. Is it true? Is it new? And is it you? You love magic and you love comedy. And so what you're saying is coming from not a place of anger or discouragement or any, you're coming from a place of, hey, I love this. And if you love it, there are ways that it can be more meaningful to you and to your audience. And, and that's really the crux of the biscuit. And so I like what you're saying a lot. I still, I, I still, you know, um, like if I go see a cover band and they play Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen, I still go, oh, this is one of my favorites. And I'm, I'm okay with the fact that as, as long as you said earlier, as long as the guy doesn't say, yeah, I wrote this. This is right. <laughs> this is my I created this song Thunder Road. Uh, so so I, I still think that there's a, a place for sort of being able to do good magic well 
even if you are not somebody who can, like you can, sit down in front of a blank screen and create something that is new and you and true, I might not, I personally, me, might not be able to do that. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm terrified by looking at that white screen. And so having the sort of, but I, but I agree with you 150%. I just, um, I think that there's maybe some room here for, for people who are like, oh my gosh, I can't, I, can't, I don't, I just want to, I just want to do a little magic because I love it. Okay. Yeah, and, and there there also is a world, I mean, there's a difference between musicians and people who are like, I just want to play the guitar for fun. Um, and that there's a there's room for that. I, I think it's it's more of a, a numbers game, right? In music, I would say all the touring acts, most of the touring acts are doing their own stuff or or collaborating or whatever. Uh, and the cover bands make up a small percentage. I'm saying that for magic to really be viable as an art form and to to go the distance, we can't have we can't, it's, we're in a, an untenable situation where 95% of the performers, even the big ones, uh, or the people that are doing big business are, are cover bands. So we just need to shift that. And yeah, and, and I appreciate what you said in terms of, I do love magic. And this is me trying to get magic, keep, let magic go the distance and be, the, re, the reason people don't appreciate magic sometimes is because we're doing this and, and I want everybody to love magic. Yeah, like you said, Jim, uh, before you listen to the interview, it's really all about loving magic and wanting it to be better. That's really his, as as uh, inflammatory as his message may sound, that's really the basis of what he's saying. Yeah, it certainly grabs your attention. I think that's his intention, uh, is that you pay attention for a second, because, uh, and he's so darn funny. I, I, is there anything in the show notes uh, that has him actually performing? Yes, absolutely. I have a couple links to him performing and a link to his website where you can see him as well. So yeah, you definitely get a chance to check out the uh, the wonderfulness that that is Harrison Greenbaum. You know, I really liked the the story about going on stage uh, as a comic and having the sponge balls in his pocket yes. and being told by the other comedian, you, you can't have that fallback on, you can't carry sponge balls, which is a nice metaphor for a lot of different endeavors you might jump into. I don't, uh, I, you know, I always have a little ball in my pocket so that I can practice. There it is right there. It's always in with me just in case. So maybe, uh, and I never, you know, I don't do that trick. I just practice it. Uh, And that's the way it is. And as you know, the only trick I do is wave and I don't carry it with me all the time, but I have it nearby if if I need to. And special thanks to uh, David Parr for turning me onto that trick and to Max Maven for inventing it and for, uh, and for telling me I was doing it wrong. So (laughs) you were all terrible, uh, including you and me, I guess I I would really go out of my way. If Harrison Greenbaum were coming anywhere close, uh, I would go see him. And I, I advise all of you to do the same. If you hear he's on the bill somewhere, uh, get out there and enjoy this man because he's great, funny and a great magician. And you can enjoy just a little bit more of Harrison if you go to our YouTube page behind the page, the Eli Marks podcast uh, YouTube page, because we have a bonus video. Yes, a bonus video of Harrison actually talking about 
the documentary Magic Camp, which at the time of the recording, Jim, I don't think you had seen yet. I think you'd no. seen the, the Disney movie Magic Camp, and yes, there's some confusion up front yeah. as to which one we're talking about. But it is a charming documentary. I recommend you go to our YouTube page and listen to Harrison talk about it and then uh, track it down because it really is, it's adorable and it's really well done and it, it gives you a... a a real sense of uh, all the different kinds of young magicians there are out there and the struggles they have. And uh, the Disney movie is not bad. Let's not uh, let's not discourage anybody from watching the Disney movie. It was it was not bad. I enjoyed it. Yes, it was not bad. And and Harrison has a few words about about that in that uh, bonus video as well. So check out that bonus video. But and, not right uh, now. Don't jump to the YouTube page right now because we've no. got really the best part of the podcast coming up. That's true. We're now going to jump into this episode's chapter of The Bullet Catch. It's a good one. It is. So let's just quickly look back at what happened in chapter 10. Eli's been kind of chatting with Trish, inviting her to the first Thursday open mic. Uh, we go there and we get to see uh, Gene perform with uh, his dummy Kenny. Max performs Dead Man's Hand uh, with Jake. There's some chatting the bar after the show. Trish shows up. Megan's there. It's just very stressful for Eli. Then Jake gets a phone call that makes him very, very angry at Harry. And that takes us right into chapter 11. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 11. Having breakfast with Harry had become a tradition ever since I moved back in after my divorce. Generally, I'd wander downstairs to his apartment once I heard the familiar sounds of his early morning rituals coming from the rooms below mine. We'd share some coffee and the morning paper, although more and more I read it off my iPad while he's still a holdout for a traditional newspaper made out of actual paper. There generally wasn't much conversation just the occasional comment about a newsworthy item or the short discussion of a plan for the day that lay before us. On this particular morning, things were quieter than usual as we sipped our coffee and took bites from our respective toast slices. After the dust-up in the bar the night before, I thought it prudent to let Harry talk when he was ready to talk and not to push the issue unnecessarily. It had taken a while for me to understand what Jake was so upset about, as he was one of those people who becomes increasingly incoherent the angrier he gets, repeating the same key words over and over. In this case, the words were, Dead man, Harry's fault, and dead man. While the words were certainly emphatic, they were not particularly insightful or helpful. He finally calmed down, at least to a degree, and I got the story out of him. Apparently, his PR person had called, saying his name had just popped up in a Google alert from an online article about Terry Alexander. The article purported to prove that Terry's death had not been murder, but was in fact accidental. And not only accidental, but that it was caused by the magician's own incompetence. There was no murder plot, no suspects, just a poor, pathetic performer who screwed up and died because of it. The article, the PR person had told him, was written by one Clive Albans. And his primary source for the piece? A magician named Harry Marks. Later, after things had calmed down a bit and Jake had headed back to his hotel, I went up to my apartment and searched online for the article. 
Jake's PR person had not been kidding. Clive's story spelled out in specific detail how the bullet catch was supposed to be performed. Then Clive showed where the mistakes had been made and why, with accompanying still frames from the video of Terry Alexander performing the trick for the last time. While Clive made it sound like he was the one who had recognized the mistakes Terry had made, it was pretty clear all of his information on the bullet catch and Terry's missteps had come from Harry. And only Harry. No other magician was quoted in the article. Two videos were embedded in the piece. The first was the shaky footage of Terry performing the bullet catch for the last time with the new addition of voiceover commentary from Clive along with freeze frames focusing on the key mistakes Terry had made. Using his standard hyperbolic phraseology, Clive whispered his way through the narration pointing out Terry's first serious error here and his final miscalculation there. A dramatic musical underscore had been added to the video, as had a new gunshot sound effect, replacing the faint pop from the original video. The second embedded video was one I had not seen before. It appeared to be from an interview with Terry on a low-end cable access talk show, clearly recorded sometime after he had been exposed as the cloak conjurer, but before his self-imposed exile in Ecuador. The footage was grainy and the sound quality poor, but the video was mesmerizing. Although they cut to the inept host occasionally, most of the interview consisted of a too tight close-up of Terry, looking drawn and tired. The video began mid-interview, and it appeared Terry had been asked if he regretted his work as the cloak conjurer. Every day, he said in a soft voice, just above a whisper. I regret it every day. I made a mistake, I understand that, but does that one mistake need to erase the 20-year career that came before it? I know I can put this behind me, but at what point will the rest of the world, the rest of the magicians of the world, put it behind them? How long do I have to pay penance? At what point does the Brotherhood open their arms and say, all is forgiven? You are once again one of us. He sniffed a bit, and it was clear from the way his voice cracked there was genuine emotion behind his words. The video cut to the host, who seemed surprised at the level of pain apparent in Terry's words. So, where do you go from here? The host finally stammered. Where can I go? Terry said as much to himself as to the host. There is no place for me. I am adrift. There was a long pause, an awkward cut back to the host, another shot of Terry staring off into space, and then the video ended, frozen on the image of Terry Alexander, looking lost and alone. So, Buster, are you going to ask me about the damned article, or are we just going to sit here all morning pretending nothing happened? Because if that's your plan, I'd rather go back to bed. Harry's voice surprising me from across the table snapped me back to reality and breakfast. I set down the iPad I hadn't really been looking at. I figured you'd talk about it when you wanted to talk about it, I said. Do you want to talk about it? No, but I'd rather do that than sit here in silence. We usually don't talk during breakfast, 
How is today any different? Today's silence is more intentional and annoying, he said, setting down the paper and picking up his coffee cup. You want more coffee? he asked as he crossed the small kitchen to the coffee maker. No thanks, I'm good. Harry refilled his cup and then added a generous amount of chocolate milk to the brew, stirring it slowly as he made his way back to the table. The floor is open for questions, he said as he sat back down. He took a sip of his coffee, which at this point was basically coffee-flavored chocolate milk, then set the cup back in the saucer. He folded his hands and looked at me, the picture of innocence. All right, I said, leaning back and prioritizing my questions, which were legion. Obviously, my friend Jake is upset. Your friend Jake made that abundantly clear last night, loudly and at great length. He turned a pleasant evening into a verbalent equivalent of a bar brawl. Well, can you blame him? You revealed the method behind the bullet catch in a national publication, I began. Harry cut me off. I revealed one method, he said sharply. Only one method, and certainly not the best or cleverest version of that trick. This is sounding very much like the defense the cloak conjurer raised about 25 years ago, and we both know how well that was received. Be that as it may, I see nothing wrong in revealing the method behind that trick. It's an insanely risky trick. No one should do the bullet catch. Yes, I can agree with that, but you just told everyone and his brother how to do it. Yes, and now that everyone knows how it's done, there'll be precious little demand to see it performed. I couldn't quite see my way around his Byzantine logic. Okay, let's skip over that part. Why did you tell all of this to, of all people, Clive Albans? You hate Clive Albans. Nonsense. I don't hate anyone. Hate is a very strong word. That may well be, but it's the word you always use in reference to Clive Albans. To quote you, for example, I hate Clive Albans. Or that pest Clive Albans came in the store while you were out. God, how I hate him. Harry scowled. Those may have been my words, but they're adding a tone I never used. I sat back and rubbed my eyes. When I opened them, he was still staring at me like a kid forced to appear in front of the principal for a crime he didn't commit. Is that all? he asked. Or can I go down and open the store? The store doesn't open for another half hour, I said, and we're unlikely to see any customers for two hours after that. I have things I can be doing. Such as? He stared back at me, defiant. Work-related things, he finally said. Things having to do with work. Okay, let me ask you this. I leaned forward and tried to take any tone of accusation out of my voice. Why did you tell Clive Albans how the bullet catch was done? Because he asked. In the past... You wouldn't tell him how the simplest trick in our shop worked. Perhaps he phrased his question in a nicer manner than some people I could name. I took a deep breath and looked him straight in the eyes. When you told him how the bullet catch was performed, I said, 
Did you know he was asking because he's doing a story on the movie they're making about Terry Alexander, the one Jake North is starring in? And did you realize if you expose the method behind the trick and the mistakes Terry made in performing it, you would destroy the mystery that is the basis of that film? That the film would no longer be a mystery about who killed Terry Alexander, but instead become a movie about an inept magician who died by doing a trick wrong. Harry stared back at me for a long moment. Yes, well, I'm sure there's a market for that film as well. I sat back, shaking my head. As Aunt Alice had said hundreds of times before, some days there was just no talking to him. Jake answered his cell phone on the third ring with a whispered, Hello? Jake, it's me, Eli. Oh, hi, Eli, he said, still whispering. I just called to see how you're doing after last night. I can't really talk. I'm sort of in a meeting with the producers, the director, a handful of lawyers, a bunch of people. How's the mood? Like Jonestown with bagels. Have they come up with a plan? We're in triage mode. His voice, already a whisper, got quieter. Some of the European pre-sale money pulled out, saying they invested in a mystery, not a remake of Dumb and Dumber. So Harry's article, the producers are furious. He took the mystery right out of the mystery. We've got nothing. Walter, the director, has this lame idea of turning it into a goth musical. But that's not going to go anywhere. So what do you think they're going to do? There was a long pause on the other end of the phone. Jake, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here, he finally said. To be honest, I think there's only one thing that will keep this movie from becoming a colossal flop. What's that? Something really newsworthy is going to have to happen. Something bigger than Harry's article. Like what? Like the star actually dying. I heard a click, and then nothing. He had hung up. Yeah, I suppose that is a fair concern for Jake, that he probably doesn't want to die while making the movie, and it would help uh, publicize the movie. That's, uh... Well, yeah, I would agree. that uh, Although any publicity is good publicity. I, I suppose so. Uh, even, even, even if Harrison Greenbaum says right to your face, Eli's terrible, the bad magician. He he bad, bad Eli. Yeah. I I'd forgotten that he uh he took Eli to task. How great that he read the book and is that into I mean, that's to me, that's an indicator that he really does care about this whole magic thing. He took the time to read the book. Yeah, that was really very sweet of him. And his message will continue in our next episode uh, in a slightly different form. We have uh, magician uh, Ryan Kane who's going to talk about stock lines and how to get rid of them, which is exactly what Harrison wants people to do. And what Ryan has done in his book, Out of Stock, is given us a process of how to remove and replace all the stock lines in your act and is the first to admit that it took him a long time to do it. And I believe he even says he still has one more that he's working on. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight. But if you agreed with what Harrison said today, then listen up next episode because Ryan O'Kane will tell you exactly step-by-step how to do it.
Yeah. Very difficult to uh, get rid of a laugh line. Uh, And I know that from just, you know, doing the work, uh, it's even if it's uh, it's very difficult to to kill a laugh, a guaranteed laugh line that, you know, is going to get a reaction. What did what did we what did we learn from Joe Bologna in my favorite year? In my business, you never cut funny. Yeah. So, and what, what Ryan is suggesting is that you don't cut the funny, you replace the funny. Cause he even, uh, as we'll learn when we talk to him uh, next episode, he even says it's very weird to have a laugh that is no longer a laugh. And his, yeah. his, his reasoning is uh, replace it. Uh, it's an interesting step-by-step process. So listen in next time, because if you follow his process, you can completely redo your act. If you're a magician, if you're listening and you're not a magician, you don't need to redo your act. Your act is just fine. <laughs> As Don't far worry. as we know, it's certainly a, a, a perfect continuation of this theme that we're in the middle of how to build a better magician. Uh, Harrison Greenbaum, Ryan Kane, it's kind of a one two punch. You could use both of their uh, philosophies and turn out a different act. Yeah. And actually, it's going to be a one two three punch because following oh. up with Ryan will be Kayla Drescher, who talks about uh, making adjustments uh, based on uh, changing cultural norms. Um, so that'll be interesting as well. Absolutely. But before we go, remember that in the show notes, you're going to find the link to the bonus video of Harrison talking about the Magic Camp documentary. There's a link to that actual documentary, I think, in the show yep. notes. Too, right, John? Yep. Um, as well as a, a link to Harrison's original You Are All Terrible blog post. Yep. And we'll have some performance links up there as well. And while you're surfing around online, uh, there's a link in the show notes to rate and review this podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you did that. You darn tootin' we would. We'd also love you to subscribe if you haven't already. Join our little band of merry magicians. And now you see right there, what you did was you took a stock line, you got rid of it, and you replaced it with the band of merry magicians. Yeah, You've it. already learned what we're going to learn next time from Ryan Kane. So until next time, thanks everybody. We'll see you soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.